I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In this episode, we discuss investing in healthcare and how to operate in the quote-unquote new normal of a post-COVID world. In order to gain a complete understanding of the impacts COVID has had and will continue to have on healthcare, we pulled together experts on both the front lines fighting this disease and also investing in companies that could help prevent major health crises like this one happening in the future. A number of experts on the front lines fighting disease and also investing in companies that could help prevent major health crises like this one. First off, I want to thank our frontline workers and essential workers in the medical field, especially for all the work they're doing. As I've said before, the worst thing that comes out of this is my family and I have severe boredom. We will be very lucky. Also, I want to thank the panelists here for the time on a, in Nashville, what is a beautiful Friday. I'll start with a brief introduction on myself, and then we'll go around Hollywood Square style, and then we'll take it from there. So I'm Brian Adams. I founded a commercial real estate firm here in Nashville, and we focus on buying stable, income-producing, multi-tenant office properties in the Southeast and the Midwest. And the bulk of our investor base are high net worth individuals and, and family offices and independent RIAs that have exposure to alternatives. And as part of our programming, we try to be a resource for those contacts and folks by exposing them to other ideas or, or macro trends that we think are important. And aside from energy, I think healthcare probably has the most exciting developments occurring today. And so we hope this is timely and informative. With that, I will pass it off to uh, Vic Gatto, and then Dr. Morris, and then Miller, and then we will go from there. Okay. Thanks, Brian. Excited to be here. Yeah, so Vic Gatto, I'm the founder and CEO of an investment platform that focuses only on health private investing. So we invest stage agnostics, seed, venture, and growth 
in health and healthcare. So that would include things that help doctors do what they do and get people healthy, but also wellness, apparel, food, diagnostics, really anything that's that's in the world of healthcare. The one thing we don't do is new drugs. So we, we don't do biochemistry or new drug creation, but everything else. The platform is six years old. We have seven different funds, about 100, I think it's 102 assets, all, of course, in, in private health investing. So it's a wild time in healthcare, lots of scary stuff, also lots of exciting stuff. I'm sure we'll get into that in the discussion. So Vic, as one of your friends, I'm delighted to hear you don't do drugs. I'm yeah. John. I'm Associate Chief of Staff at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. I have a number of portfolios at Vanderbilt, including emergency preparedness. So we've been involved in pandemic planning since early January. I also have the ability to look at healthcare through a number of perspectives, not only acute care, but I have been and currently chief medical officer of the Vanderbilt Health Affiliated Network, which is a payer network with about 300,000 covered lives. And I've also had some exposure to the public equity community being on the board of a number of publicly traded companies. And at one point in my career was chairman of the board of a New York stock exchange company. So I bring a number of different perspectives to a view on healthcare. I'm excited to be here. My name is Miller Morris. I am a public health professional. I have a master's degree in the social determinants of health, as well as a master's in public health in global health and epidemiology. Together, those two academic platforms have kind of helped me understand the ways in which biomedical research and biomedical methodology translates into uh, big, real-world human life problems and solutions. I worked for a while at the WHO in their Department of Health System Safety and Delivery, and I was there during the outbreak of Ebola in the area of Sierra Leone. And my team was helping work on an ethical response and vaccination strategy in Sierra Leone and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Now I have taken off my academic hat a little bit and am venturing into the world of social enterprise and entrepreneurship to address durable challenges in reproductive health at the global scale. And I'm excited to be here. Thank you all for that. Wonderful perspectives. And I think variable perspectives, which will be a a robust conversation. And let's frame this up a little bit. We're going to go around the square here. Everyone's going to give their perspective on things, and then we will open up to Q&A. If you have questions or specific topics that you want one of the speakers to address, you can utilize the chat or the Q&A button, and I will uh, try to address them as they come in. Doc, since you're on the front lines of this, or at least living it, at Vanderbilt every day. What is the current state of play and what do you think the next 24 months looks like? Well, the current state of play is still to be determined. We are collecting daily more and more data to be able to populate predictive models. But as you know, predicting the future is a tenuous event. There are basically three scenarios that the models look at. Scenario number one is a series of small waves of increased COVID 
testing over the next 24 months, small waves that is very regional in the way it presents itself. Scenario number two is the worst case scenario, which is a large wave that occurs in the fall. And that model is more based on the historical model of how influenza works. And the third model is a slow burn with no clear wave, but just a continuous new case count as we go over the next 24 months. We believe, and I think most experts are coming to believe, that the first model, the small wave model, is the one that is most likely to occur over the next 24 months. And that model is going to be regional in its expression. So let's look at where we are regionally today. In the southeast, we are seeing a flare-up of cases after early reopening. So Arkansas, Alabama, North and South Carolina, Tennessee, and Mississippi are all seeing elevated case numbers over the last week or 10 days. The situation in the Northeast is exactly opposite that. They're making progress in New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. I was on a conversation with one of my colleagues in New York yesterday and his hospital, which is 1,800 beds, went from 1,900 COVID patients four weeks ago to about 250 today. That's still a huge number of patients, but clearly going the right direction. In the Midwest, we're seeing rising new infections and rising number of hospitalizations. In the Southwest, Texas reported about 2,000 new cases the last day of May. And in the far west, the infection rates are still too high in Seattle for them to enter phase two. And the mayor in Nashville, parenthetically yesterday, declared the rates too high for Nashville to enter phase two on its projected phase two date, which was next week. California also is seeing a rise in cases. May 30th was 3,700, which was its highest daily total. So we're not out of the woods yet, and the rush to open up the economy, understandable rush, but rush with risk, needs to be put in context. And what we are trying to do in terms of social isolation boils down to one thing from the medical perspective, and that's protecting our healthcare capacity, specifically our acute care capacity. We know that if hospitals become overwhelmed, that the death rate goes up by about a factor of five. And that obviously is an unacceptable kind of thing. Consequently, we have put in national social distancing, and that has given the healthcare system time to create capacity by limiting elective surgery, time to create surge capacity, adding additional beds in space that is, shall we say, untraditional, and getting additional ventilators and equipment to be able to occupy that space effectively. 
and we've had time to modify the healthcare workforce in terms of doing cross-training between inpatient and outpatient. Unfortunately, it looks as if we thought that we were going to have the ability to modify public policy. I think that now that we have started to reopen, that cat is probably out of the bag and it's going to be very difficult to be able to reinstitute social distancing in an effective level. On the other hand, we have created that additional capacity and hopefully that will be sufficient. I have focused on the implications of the disease for the U.S. community and Miller is going to focus after me on global health. But before we get to the global picture, I want to identify what I think are going to be some post-COVID megatrends in healthcare. First of all, we are going to see consolidation of the healthcare industry. The strong will survive and the weak will have an enhanced rate of deterioration. And what that means is that across both provider and payers, the winners are going to be those players with strong balance sheets. The community hospital network and the safety network are going to be severely stressed. They are going to come out of this with diminished resources just as a point of interest the federal funding to supplement healthcare to get them through the COVID crisis has been based on the hospital or practices Medicare participation. And this has put at risk those facilities that have primarily a Medicaid uh, population. So we've gotten federal money to, in many cases, the strong and not to the weak. We're also going to see these larger organizations struggling to implement innovation. And I believe we're going to see a stronger private-public partnership where innovation is coming from the private sector and slowly being adapted by these large bureaucratic surviving institutions. The second major trend in healthcare is gonna be remote care. Everybody knows about telehealth, but we also have a large movement to what's called hospital at home or healthcare to home, and a large movement towards retail care. And I think, that behavioral health is going to be one aspect of healthcare that is particularly enhanced by this move towards remote care. Remote care is going to require the development of additional monitoring platforms, delivery services, and will put a stress on certain private practices. Again, the small providers are going to be at risk. The third megatrend that I see is an accelerated push to value-based care. This is the foundational premise which 
has been in effect, but I think is going to be accelerated. It is, in its simplest terms, the achievement of quality either at the same or lower cost. And that is only going to come through innovation. And it's been difficult for payers to be able to get individuals to participate in lowering their utilization. And I hope that we're going to see some of the regulations which govern this flight-to-value-based care relaxed. The fifth megatrend is a conflict between privacy and public good. We are seeing the value accelerate of big data and how it allows us to understand population health. And it is going to be a pretty robust fight, and I'm not sure who the winner is going to be, between who owns your healthcare data, the public good or the private individual, and how are we going to bridge that gap? And that's going to be especially important as uh, new genomic data becomes available. Finally, we must rebuild the public health infrastructure, and Miller will address that. Finally, I'm going to talk a little bit about the impact on healthcare of COVID in various segments of the healthcare environment. In acute care, we've talked about remote care. That is going to diminish overall hospitalizations, but that diminishment is going to be offset by the collapse of some of the rural healthcare system. You have seen, I think, in the news, large public companies no longer giving forecasts for their earnings over the intermediate term. It's just too hard to tell when the public is going to come back to elective health care, which is elective surgery, rather, which is the driver of healthcare economics today. I will say that the Vanderbilt experience, which is small, over the last three weeks, we have now achieved our year-over-year volumes of elective surgery. So at least in this part of the world, that's coming back quickly. Post-acute care, the large senior living component, I think is in for a very rocky period. There's going to be a lot of litigation. When the dust settles, we're going to find that between 25 and 30% of the death rate occurred in the senior living community. And I'm not talking about seniors now. I'm talking about those people who were housed in senior living communities. And so it's going to be very difficult for that segment of the healthcare industry to rebound. In the outpatient arena, I think acute care surgery centers are going to come back quickly. Primary care is going to come back relatively quickly in urban settings, less so in the rural settings. Retail care is going to be strong. That's healthcare delivered in Kroger and Publix and CVS and so on and so forth. They're well capitalized. I do think we're going to see a much more sophisticated integration between data collected in the retail care community and the individual's personal health record. 
The research community, I think, is going to be impacted in a number of ways. Obviously, if you're in vaccine research and so on and so forth, you're in a very sweet spot for public finance. I think we're going to see the regulatory environment change to be able to get the translation from benchtop to bedside much more efficient. And I think we're going to see dramatic changes in regulation at both the federal and state level in terms of safety versus efficacy in trial design. So I have a big caveat for any of you who are trying to project this onto the investment landscape. And that is, I think that the presidential election is going to be a watershed in how we move forward with healthcare. The election will affect the concept of Medicare expansion. It will affect the viability of the Affordable Care Act. It will affect the degree to which the public health infrastructure is built and it will affect our global health engagement. Finally, I'd like to leave you with the challenge that I see going forward, which summarized in a sentence is, how do we deliver quality health care based on a huge set of new data incorporating both the genetic profile of individuals and social determinants, and then tailor that information to an individual's personal health plan. I think we're gonna see a redefined partnership between government and the private sector. I think we're gonna see the governmental sector in doing the kind of development in public health that is required. I think we're going to see the private sector doing the high-risk investment that is required for innovation. And I think we may very well see the rise of what I call mega philanthropy, the model being the Gates Foundation or the Wellcome Trust, where these very large philanthropic organization try to bridge the gap between what the government can do and what the private sector can do. And finally, I think we're going to see hardwiring of some of our types of innovation, such as telehealth, through the process of HSS Medicare funding, Right now, the largest impediment to telehealth is the fact that the insurance companies and Medicare have not yet decided to pay for it. So going forward, I think we're going to move from a model where populations were treated based on just disease, where now populations are going to be treated based on their disease history in addition to their genomic profile and to certain social determinants, which are affecting about 30% of the cost of healthcare. And with that, 
I'd like to hand the baton to Miller and have her give you a more global perspective. Thank you. That sets me up very nicely. So I went ahead and pulled some data on what COVID-19 looks like on the global scale this morning, just to give the most up-to-date picture to frame your thinking. Stateside, the number of cases that we have confirmed in the United States is continuing to stay steady, which some people can attribute to the fact that more people are getting tested right now than they have been in previous weeks and months. And an important metric to look at is that the proportion of Americans who are getting tested that are testing positive continues to fall, which is reason for hope and for optimism in the United States. But there are some emerging hotspots that really create a lot of concern and challenge for addressing this at the global level. The first being South America. Brazil has been grave to look at for the past several weeks and continues to look pretty perilous, as well as Chile and Argentina. Additionally, India and spread into the Middle East is a cause for concern for global health epidemiologists. And North and Northwest Africa are starting to look like a larger challenge. And I think that the month of June and the month of July will become a big crossroads for the African continent. And I'll speak a little bit later as to why we have to look at this globally, particularly if we're going to hang all of our hats and hopes on a vaccine for a path to returning to relative normalcy. In terms of mortality, we look at mortality in two different ways. The first being the case mortality ratio, which is how many Of 100 COVID positive people, how many of those are dying? In the globe right now, what we're seeing is that the countries with the highest fatality ratio right now are France, the United Kingdom, Italy, Mexico, and Sweden. I think Sweden is an interesting example of a country that has a very robust and very strong public health infrastructure, but chose not really to use that infrastructure's authority to be restrictive in what they asked their citizens to do to reduce the spread of COVID-19. And the other way we look at mortality is deaths per 100,000 people. So how many people are dying of COVID for every 100,000 members, both healthy and infected in a population? And when you look at the list of five countries that have the highest numbers there, again, you're seeing the United Kingdom, Italy, Sweden, and France, but then the United States also reaches in that top five list. And the reason that I think we're seeing that really has to do with testing. The bottleneck and the limited availability of tests that we saw early in the outbreak here in the United States that's really continued to be consequential is is really just going to complicate our understanding of the burden of this disease stateside. And that's something that we'll have to continue to think about when we want to better understand the role that COVID-19 has played in U.S. public health and mortality over the next 24 months. So I also want to talk a little bit about why we quarantine. I know that a lot of you are sitting on this feeling a little bit stir crazy and the most obvious reason is to contain the disease, to reduce the number of new cases, which in turn can reduce the possibility of hospitals becoming overwhelmed and overburdened, which as Dr. Morris talked about is hugely consequential for 
mortality of patients with COVID-19, but also other people who are in the hospital for a multitude of reasons. Quarantine also allows for time to be able to improve our science. It allows us to improve our testing, to look forward into treatment and vaccine development, and also start to focus some of our time and energy on other public health strategies, such as contact tracing, which is the, you know, the examination of which people who are testing positive for the disease, how did they get it? What individuals can we look at for being spreaders or super spreaders of the virus? And that is something that's really been a shortcoming of the United States public health infrastructure that's been illuminated through all of this and other countries have done it really well. And I'll talk more about why contact tracing is important as we start to look forward to the next 24 months in a vaccine. So if a vaccine is kind of a gate opener, where are we sitting right now? There's a couple of things to be excited about. The first being that the vast majority of people who are infected with coronavirus are getting better. And that immune response within of itself is sort of a proof of concept that this is the kind of disease that a vaccine can be really helpful in combating. That being said, vaccine development is very tricky and it's very costly and typically it takes a lot of time. We've seen in the past four or five months about 24 months worth of work in developing a vaccine. And the most promising candidate from a lot of people's perspective is a vaccine from a company called Moderna. It's an RNA vaccine that's really the first of its kind. All other vaccines that we've seen on the global scale or reach human trials ever have been what are called whole or component vaccines. And so an RNA vaccine could be groundbreaking not only for the containment and prevention of the spread of coronavirus, but also just for vaccine and public health technology going forward. So this is an exciting moment. We've seen an unprecedented amount of global collaboration and teamwork across the private sector, across the governmental sector, to be able to move this forward very, very quickly, which I think is necessary when lots of people are getting sick and, and lots of people are dying. The concern with the vaccine is, is less can we figure out something that works, but more about how long will a vaccine protect somebody. We know that of the hundreds of coronaviruses that we have already identified in both human patients and animal reservoirs that have potential for spillover, we see that they're very durable diseases. They're sturdy. They don't really seem to care if it's summer or winter and what part of the globe they can live and they can thrive in a lot of different environments and conditions. And additionally, the antibodies that are protective against infection with the coronavirus typically only last for about nine months to a year. And that's not specific to COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus and the disease caused by that virus that we're seeing at the global pandemic, but the larger category of coronaviruses that have been studied. And so given that knowledge, we know that this is going to be a vaccine that isn't given once, it's given multiple times. And even people who are really dedicated to their individual health and public health probably have missed a flu shot in the past couple of years. So that's going to pose problems. But even once a vaccine's developed, I think what the larger conversation about coronavirus is missing is that getting a vaccine is step one. It's a lot harder to get it to multiple people. So you may have heard the terminology herd immunity over and over and over again. Epidemiologists model that in order for there to be true herd immunity in any given population, about 60 to 80% of people need to be 
immune or demonstrate antibodies that protect against the coronavirus. And for that to happen on a global scale, that's about 4 billion people. And to give you our best bet, even with the rapid production and manufacturing of these vaccines that may or may not prove efficacious, even though early signals look good, our best bet is that we could have about 200 million doses by the beginning of 2021. And again, that would just be one dose and that protection could only last for a matter of months. So scaling this has huge implications. And then even once it's scaled from a manufacturing perspective, there are a ton of barriers to max vaccination and antibody coverage at the global level. So there's only ever been one disease that was effectively eradicated. It was smallpox. We had the last natural occurrence of smallpox in the world in 1980. And the way that that vaccination was unrolled at the global population was through a strategy called ring vaccination, which requires knowing who is sick, knowing who's most at risk for getting sick and vaccinating those people first and then working out in their social circles. As you can imagine, that strategy, as effective as it is, is heavily dependent on contact tracing. So for the United States to see a ring vaccination strategy work with some sort of COVID vaccine, we're going to have to invest in contact tracing in a way that we just haven't been, which is something that I think warrants a lot of attention and a lot of conversation. There are also cultural barriers. You know, we've seen declining support for vaccines and vaccination campaigns here stateside and globally for a long time. And even people who really believe in the power of science and the power of vaccines are finding themselves frightened of healthcare systems because they've been scary places to be in the past couple of months. So we'll have to be creative about how to get people vaccinated if they're not willing to come into the hospital. So what Dr. Morris said about health at home could really start to look like a community health system in which vaccine is done in the residence rather than at the healthcare center, which is a model that's used in a lot of low and middle income countries. And so we have a lot to learn from global partners. There are big barriers for scale, particularly in lower income countries, particularly when it comes to concepts like the cold chain. Vaccines have to be refrigerated and kept at a certain temperature to be effective. And the ability to house vaccines in large refrigerated spaces is going to be a huge issue. I mean, even just in the United States, in the most robust hospitals, we're going to have to build refrigerators. We simply don't have the space for this quite yet. And again, a repetition barrier where you have to get multiple installations of a vaccine to have durable protection against coronavirus is going to be something that proves really difficult for a lot of people. And it's going to require monumental investment in public health and global health infrastructure at the regional level, at the national level, at the global level through multilateral corporations and entities like the WHO or Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance or the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So again, this is a global problem. It requires a global solution. And public health doesn't work without individual buy-in. And global health doesn't work without robust public health infrastructure at the regional and national level. So this is going to be a monumental coordinated effort. It's a marathon. We're not even through the first couple of miles yet. So we have new normals. And in the meantime, we know it works. We know that no masks is more dangerous than wearing a mask. And we should be washing our hands. So... This is a a really big human challenge, but we have the technology to get through it in a way that 
is really effective. It's just, it's going to require a lot, a lot of investment from a lot of different people. So with that, I'll pass it back over to Vic to talk about what that landscape could look like from an investment perspective. Yeah, thanks, Miller. So I think I, I'll just build on what Dr. Morris and Miller both said. I think COVID-19 has been really challenging, and I don't think anyone believes that it's going to be cured and fixed in the near term. So Miller mentioned it. I think it's it has changed the entire landscape, and we're not going back to normal. I think there's going to be a new normal that we all get used to much more than we ever get back to like the way it was, you know, at the end of last year. And so uh, from an investment point of view, you know, we've been focused on health innovation and changes coming to healthcare for the past 10, 15 years. Many things that we were watching over the last three, four, five years as very slow moving five, 10 year trends have accelerated. So one of the things that COVID-19 has done is accelerated these changes coming to the marketplace on a very slow rolling basis and kind of catalyze the adoption of it for urgency and being able to quickly get care to folks. The change had to happen much more quickly. So the, the four trends that we have been investing in already that we see accelerating are care moving out of the hospital, like the four walls of the hospital, moving out of the hospital to the neighborhood and then the home. And that has been coming for a long time. But it's, it's accelerated now. Dr. Morris talked about it. It's true in telehealth, but it's also true in, in home health. It's true in the retail centers in, in your neighborhood. And that is escalating now. The second trend is uh, that technology is being adopted. And this is true in things like infrastructure. So like all the back office hospitals have not been, health systems in general, insurance companies, have not been as automated as other industries. And that's all changing now. There's a lot of pressure on the financial systems, a lot of pressure on the volume of care, on the data records. And so hospitals and insurance companies and other health providers are upgrading and they've been forced to upgrade. It brings a lot of pressure on the system, but it will result in much better systems uh, in the future. So someone asked about uh, revenue cycle management. Revenue cycle management is sort of one of the leading places where hospitals have begun to invest And so that is the place where they are getting better, but we need to get that technology and that attention to optimization and efficiency pushed through the entire infrastructure. And I don't think it ends there. I think we have to collect more data and be much better at diagnostics and helping patients stay healthy as opposed to wait till they're sick and then outbound and use technology to reach out with telemedicine or wearables or kind of remote monitoring, rural communications in order to be able to treat many more patients more effectively at lower cost. Other industries have done this. Uh, almost every other industry has brought technology to bear to drive cost advantages and outcome advantages. And healthcare is, is now pretty quickly going into that. Third is the rise of the consumer. So individuals have for 10 years, been trying to get more authority, more information, more say in their own care. And COVID has accelerated this as well. People are taking responsibility for themselves. Everything from washing their hands and wearing a mask, as Miller mentioned, to understanding their underlying health risks and understanding what do I do if this. And we're going to see more and more people take 
personal responsibility for the direction of their care and their financial responsibility for their care. And then there's going to be market entry. So we've already seen all the big tech players and, and big companies, retail players move into healthcare. So Google, Apple, Salesforce, but Amazon, but also Walmart and CVS moving into healthcare. So there's going to be consolidation, as John mentioned, where large companies that have that are hospitals or insurance companies that have strong balance sheets will consolidate and buy up or merge with smaller, less strong competitors. But we're also having new entries. Companies that are not thought of healthcare companies today are moving in and going to be delivering care and underwriting risk and taking care of the entire patient. And so that, that's kind of how we see it is that there's going to be pretty massive change. I've been talking about 10 years of change in 10 months. I think that's what we're kind of going through right now, where we all sort of became aware of COVID in either late February or early March, and how plugged in you were. And so 2020 is going to be a huge change year, and we're not going to go back. And so Jumpstart has, for its whole existence, taken sort of a different approach to investing. We try to understand what the industry is looking for from a kind of a demand side. What do they need help with from an innovation side? And then we go find innovators, private companies, large and small, and invest in them and bring them to market. And so we're doing that now, but the demand is increasing dramatically. So that is, of course, challenging for the folks in the industry and for us as patients, but it's, it's great for innovators that have been inventing and bringing new solutions to market for the past 10, 15 years. There hasn't been enough demand for that. There's been much more supply of innovation than demand, and we're seeing that flip now. So I am optimistic. It's a lot of challenge, but I'm optimistic that the innovation is out there. We are involved in it every day, and now the industry is willing to adopt it and bring it in and, and sort of make the changes that, that are needed to bring, to bring the care to folks. And so that's kind of from the investment side. I think it's a it's a big challenge for our society. And the innovation is, I think, the solution, the way we will address it and be able to help people more broadly, help them manage their health more effectively, and actually save money as a society in order to be able to bring it globally and help more people. So with that, I'll stop and uh, see, Brian, you want to talk about questions or where we should go from here? Yeah, thanks, Vic. You know, as a non-healthcare person myself, it's been just a tsunami of news and information and a whole sector that I knew nothing about, an amateur. I guess an open question to everybody on the panel, what is the one thing that we're not hearing about or that's not getting enough coverage that we should be paying attention to in this post-COVID world when it comes to healthcare? I'll take a first crack at that. I think the most important metric regionally is hospital capacity. And the math associated with hospital capacity, there are many locations, Nashville, Davidson County, gives a daily report on hospital capacity. This morning we have about 21% of our hospital capacity, including surge, available. That's a pretty good number because we got a lot of hospital beds in the city of Nashville where healthcare mecca. But 
the math for the average person is take the total number of cases in your region, divide it by 10, and that will give you the number of hospital beds that you need. Divide that number by three, and that will give you the number of ICU beds that you need. You go to the Hopkins website, you can go county by county and look and see what the number of licensed beds are in your county, and then be able to take the new cases and do the math to see where you are in a realistic phased opening process. Yeah, so I think hospital capacity is a huge issue that needs more attention. I'll throw out another one. I think, you know, we're all watching these protests of Black Lives Matter and the George Floyd murder. I think these two big issues of the last few months, COVID-19 and the Black Lives Matter movement, are more intertwined than people at first blush understand. So COVID-19 is very dangerous if you have underlying health concerns already. And that is predominantly, very predominant in black populations and in poor populations. And so I think in the next month, we're gonna see a lot of people coming out talking about the double impact of COVID on the black and poor and minority populations in a way that is not so far been talked about dramatically. People were focused on George Floyd, of course, and and the terrible murder that happened, but I think it also is true that black people and, and poor people in general need a lot of help on the existing health trends, their underlying conditions. And as a country, we have not been supportive enough of sort of bringing public health and bringing support to those populations. I agree with that. I'll give you one anecdote from Nashville. The most impacted community in Nashville is the people where English is not their primary language. We are not getting messages to that population. We are getting messages to the high-risk population of the Black and Latino communities or Asian communities, but not the immigrant communities where the rate is about 10 times higher than the white rate, in at least in this community. I want to build off of that and say the disparities and the disproportionality of the effect of this virus cannot be understated and cannot continue to be ignored. And to illustrate to people that at the national level, data are not being collected to really get a good understanding of that picture. It's happening piecemeal, hospitals, hospital systems, potentially city or statewide public health departments are collecting that data. But but as a country, we're not watching those trends, which I think is inherently both a product of and a producer of the problem that Vic illustrated, which is that minority communities have always experienced disproportionate burdens of public health problems. And when we don't study them, we can't move that needle forward. So if that's something that's of interest to you, John Hopkins School of Public Health has a list of countries that do collect that kind of data. So you can track those trends in countries 
predominantly in Europe and also Australia and New Zealand, which aren't the United States, but might serve as a way of framing your thinking for how to quantify some of those, those disparities. Yeah, this morning I heard on BBC an epidemiologist say that corona cannot distinguish race, but it can shed light on racial inequality, which I thought was a good summation. Miller, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the uh, geopolitical issues involved with the vaccine in terms of where countries are, public-private partnerships, and then I'm going to ask you an impossible question, but where do you think ultimately that will lead in terms of timeline, location? How do you see that playing out in the next 12, 24 months? That's a great question. It's impossible to give a real answer to, but I can share a little bit of my thinking around it. The first being, I think this pandemic has illuminated to so many people that pandemic response and public health inherently become political issues sometimes. And there is a real need for a unified push for solutions and building infrastructure to be able to address this pandemic or the next pandemic. We hear this called a hundred year pandemic, but given how globalized our world was up until a few months ago, it's not too crazy to think that this could be a 50 year thing. And I can't state enough how important it is to look at this process from a global perspective and stress how much partnerships and collaboration across sectors, across geopolitical boundaries are. The only way that we will see this disease controlled at a global level and the only pathway for eradication of any disease ever is to utilize global connections and partnerships There has been a lot of talk about the WHO and and their role in in COVID-19, and it's very complicated, but they are the body that enables and invests in public health and global health infrastructure at the level that allowed smallpox to be eradicated, that allowed polio to trend towards eradication, although we're not there yet, and that has given us hope that measles, mumps, and rubella could one day be eradicated as well. And the international research community is magnificent. One of the most interesting things about this pandemic has been, it's almost been phased depending on where in the world you live and where in the world you get your information. So at the beginning of the outbreak in the United States, we were looking at Italy almost as like Italy was our crystal ball and watching trends in prevalence, mortality, hospitalization in Italy to make decisions about how to enforce or guide restrictions on social distancing, on uh, lockdowns, on how to treat patients. And with as many people as sick as there are, there's just not enough people in one country to figure this out alone. We need to be looking at clinical trials that are existing all over the world. We need vaccine clinical trial sites that exist all over the world. We need a body that regulates the ethics of how to do this the right way that mitigates patient harm. 
and pushes the most good from a public health perspective. And countries just can't do that in a vacuum. So it's imperative that relationships across sectors and between countries are strengthened in the wake of all of this, because after it's coronavirus, there's likely going to be another global health threat that emerges in the next several decades that requires all hands on deck. And there are, you know, I I say all the time, in most disciplines, your metric of success is the presence of something, whether that be wealth or fame or status or degrees or what have you. But in public health, our metric of success is the absence of something. And it's really hard to garner support of global health initiatives when people say, well, we got all worried about Ebola and then we never saw it here. Well, that's because what was done worked. So there's never been a more important time for collaboration and cross-disciplinary and cross-sector work. So Mila, I completely agree with that. I mean, it's unassailable. That's definitely what needs to happen. I guess I want your feel. I'm concerned, I think is the right word about, I don't really see that occurring. Like if anything, I see the opposite where you're getting the fracturing of global entities and a much more nationalistic, protective response, which is a really negative trend. And so how do you see that turning where we trust the science and we trust the international bodies? Because if we try to go nationalistic, you can't stop the disease. It just pops up somewhere else. It's never going to work. Absolutely. It feels a bit like a catch-22 in that the most obvious way to build public and global trust in science is to produce something that is effective and has a marked change in the development and the progress of this pandemic. But you can't accomplish that unless you have that multilateral, multi-country collaboration in the first place. So we run into a cart and horse scenario, so to speak. I think that one thing that I'm now wishing I would have chimed in on on Brian's previous question about what isn't being talked about that should be talked about more is the vast spread of information and misinformation that is just really uncontrollable. And I think conversations about, you know, responsibility of certain platforms to fact check what they put out and the information that they promote to the world are just as relevant, if not more relevant today than they were, you know, in the wake of the 2016 presidential election or or pick whatever historical milestone that you want to unravel that's occurred since the rise of social media. And on top of that, I, I just think that so often we think about global health as charity when really we need to be restructuring our thinking about global health as national security, global security, investment, but also and perhaps most important, foreign policy. And this could create a point of leverage or a springboard for there to be a global collaboration and search for solutions that we haven't seen in probably since after the Second World War. I'm concerned, just as you are, that we aren't going to get there. But I stand by the idea that it's necessary. And so I have really no other option but to be optimistic and hopeful that it can. Yeah, yeah, I share that. I guess uh, controlling the internet makes me worried. 
just I think it's pretty big. But I really like the idea that you put forth about kind of reframing how we think about global health as not charity, but more it's beneficial to us. Like if we can get everyone out there to a herd immunity of COVID-19, then it, that means by definition, it won't come back around to the United States. And so it is both good for society, good for the planet, but also selfishly good for the U.S., to try to help this be a global solution. Absolutely. I mean, I think what this pandemic has demonstrated to at least people who live in the Western Hemisphere who don't worry about epidemic disease every day is that disease anywhere is disease everywhere. And if you can control or manage it in one part of the world, that's not really all that meaningful in the world that we live in today and norms of travel and large public gatherings and what have you, I think they've probably shifted forever, but we are a globalized society that's going to interact with one another. And so as my sister eloquently puts it, if we can only really manage the state side, but nowhere else, it's kind of just like having a peeing section in the pool. It is a little bit futile to, to really just think about nationally what we can be doing. And as far as the spread of information, I think one thing that's pertinent but less talked about is that the, the scientific community undergoes a really rigorous process of scientific and peer review before we're able to disseminate information, which is very necessary, but it means that what people hear from the scientific community is oftentimes way down the list on their feed of what you know their, their neighbor thinks is happening. And so it also falls on us just to be responsible, critical thinkers and stewards of public health in our individual level and in our families and as leaders in our community. Well, that is about the hour, gone a minute over. So I want to be mindful of everyone's time. Thank you to all the participants and thank you to our panel. We will be providing this recording through our various websites likely next week. So I want to wish everyone a happy Friday. Hope you enjoy the weekend and thank you again to all our panelists. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.